Welcome to Covenant Life Church, a ministry that is committed to helping you discover Christ's purpose for your life and leading you towards your best existence by providing you with meaningful ways to affect positive change in your world. Join Pastor Shane as he delivers a powerful and inspirational message for your life today. Uh, have you ever received a regifted item? You can raise your hand. Yeah, okay, the fortunate few that haven't. Now, here's the test. We're among friends, so you can answer this. How many of you have regifted an item? All right, the bold. All right, yeah. Uh, so, regifted items, sometimes they're fine, but, but most of the time, it's like you forgot. You forgot until you were walking out of the house, and then you grabbed something that looked decent and you wrapped it up. And you totally forgot my birthday or Christmas or whatever it is. And I've been fortunate that so many times in my life when that has happened, they've done it so well that I didn't know. Uh, But there were a few times in my life when I definitely knew that they forgot or that they picked something from their house and they gave it to me. And one of these times actually happened at my wedding. Now, a wedding is a beautiful time, right? You know, as you're a kid, you, uh, my, my daughter, she's four years old, and so now she has found, like, the toy magazine, and she's having fun going through and, like, circling everything. And so as a kid, you get to do that, right? You get to make your list, and you get to tell people. But it sort of falls out of favor as you get older, because then you're like, you just look selfish if you make a list, or you're, like, circling stuff and handing it to people. But the wedding... Your wedding is a time in life when you get to go to a store, grab a little like gun, walk around the store and shoot things, and it goes into this magical list, and then people can come and get exactly what you want. Unless there are those people, and perhaps you are those people, uh, that go to the store that you registered at and decide, I know what they want. They don't know what they want, but I do, right? And so they go to the store and they get you whatever they think that you want. Well, at our wedding, we had a number of those things happen, but we also had someone who decided that what we really wanted in our early years of marriage was a ceramic ice cream cones. Because apparently they looked at us and they thought, you know what those people are? They're people that like ice cream and they like it in the ice cream cone, but they don't want to eat the ice cream cone. That doesn't make any sense. And so we get these ceramic, ugly ice cream cones, and I'm looking at it after we've unwrapped the presents, and I'm like, what are we going to do with this? Like, we do like ice cream, but not that much. And, and I like to eat the cones, so I don't want a ceramic one. And so I'm looking at it, and I'm like, all right, well, you know what? We're just going to send this back. We're going to take this back to the store, and we're going to get, like, some, some little thing that we need for our kitchen, and that'll be good. I start to look at this thing, and there's no barcode, right? And not only is there no barcode, I begin to realize there's no receipt, so I have no idea where this is from. I'm like, you know what? So it's okay. I'll Google it. And so I Google every variation you can imagine of ceramic ice cream cone set. I cannot find these things anywhere. Okay, it's like the unicorn of gifts. And so I am looking and I'm like, you know what? We're just going to end the madness because this probably came out of someone's house that someone gave it to them and they didn't want it. And they thought, here's this nice newlywed couple. They'll take it and they'll think it's great. And so I decided to end the cycle and I gave it to Goodwill. I just said, you know what? I'm just going to get it out of here. I'm not going to give it to someone else. Right? And so regifted items can be like that. They can be something that we notice, like, you know, it's, uh, it's smudged, it's got some issues, and you know that it has been used before. But not all regifted items are that way. And in fact, some regifted items are incredibly meaningful. Right? So I grew up in the Deep South where hunting is a really, really a big thing. And so uh, for people in my family and in other families, an interesting moment is this like coming of age when you get your first gun, right? You're finally mature enough to handle a rifle, 
right? And what will often happen is there will be like a rifle or a gun that's passed down through the generations from grandfather or great-grandfather, and you give that gun to the son. And it's this re-gifted item, right? It's not new, but it has this incredible significance that it takes on for your life. Now, for those of you who could care less about hunting and are squeamish about guns, uh, maybe it's jewelry, right? And so you have uh, people that will get married and they will get their engagement ring or the wedding ring will be like a great grandmother's ring, right? And so finally this momentous occasion is happening in your life and you're given this gift that isn't new, and in a real way, it's re-gifted, but it has this significance attached to it, right? And that has happened to me several times in my life where I was re-gifted something, something that was used, and yet it has this amazing significance for my life. And this right here is, is one of those items. This is my grandfather's Bible. Uh, this is the one, and the date in here is um, from 1959, okay? So this was right around the time that my grandfather uh, I think he was 19 years old or so, and he became the Sunday school director at his church, right? And so this was his Bible that he used for all these years. Now, you can see that it's torn, it's taped, it's marked up, and, and this Bible is very special to me. Uh, yesterday, eight years ago, was the day that my grandfather passed away, uh, and, and as they were giving out different things of his belongings, I ended up with this Bible. I was re-gifted this book. Uh, and I don't use it the way that he used it, right? He, he obviously read it a lot. I don't read it uh, because if I do read it much, it'll fall apart. And, and so this book sits on my bookshelf, right? And it means something different to me. Like I, I have other Bibles that I read, but this book uh, is a symbol for me. It's a symbol of my heritage and my family, right? And um, Julie and I are very fortunate that we have two generations on either side that love the Lord, that had long marriages, that love God and pass that down. And so this, this Bible represents a blessing in my life. It represents uh, a head start in some ways, spiritually, that, that I have people that prayed for me and prayed for my future wife, and she has the same. And this book, in, in many ways, represents that to me. It's this amazing gift that happens. Now, you probably have similar things in your life where someone has given you something that's old, and it might be like your most treasured possession. And your value in it is a little bit different than the original value, but it's incredibly significant nonetheless. And today I want to talk to you about how Jesus is a gift, right? We're talking about Advent. That Jesus is the reason for the season. Jesus is the gift. But in some ways, when we look at the Bible and we really understand what's going on, Jesus is a re-gifted gift, that Jesus is actually a re-gifted gift. Now, Jesus obviously is born, and that's a, a new thing, God becoming human, but I want you to understand something. In the New Testament, if we turn to John, the, the gospel writer says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the New Testament writers say that Jesus is the Word of God, and that is a great gift to us. But the people of God were not without the word of God before this. They had the written word. So God had given a gift to his people. When they opened it over the centuries, they received the written word. And this is, this is a Hebrew Bible. This is the Old Testament as we read it. And this is God's gift to humanity. This is God's gift to us even before Jesus came to the earth. 
And this is a beautiful gift. It's a beautiful gift with a beautiful story. And this morning, I wanted to remind you of what that gift was like before Jesus. You see, we open the Bible in the book of Genesis, and we find the creation story. And everything begins there. And God walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And then the chapters go on, and we see the fall. We see sin enter into the equation. But we also see that even as sin enters the equation, God seems to be a character in Genesis. Right? He shows up physically to talk with people. He meets with Abraham. He wrestles with Jacob. God is there working with them. And he's working to undo the curse of sin. Adam and Eve willfully found themselves in bondage to sin. And God, through the generations, worked to begin to undo the effects of that curse. And he met with Abraham. And he promised Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. And that his family would inherit the land of Israel. And that ultimately, all of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. So this is the great promise of Genesis. This is the story. But as you read Genesis and you continue on, you find that it ends differently than you might expect. The family is growing, which is great. So we've sort of accomplished, started to accomplish one goal. But they certainly don't number the sands on the shore or the stars in the sky. It's a family of 12 brothers. But they're not in the land of Israel. You see, Genesis ends with them in Egypt. And amazingly, Joseph in Egypt saves the nation. He saves the nation from a famine. He saves his own people from a famine. So it seems that maybe God really is blessing the world through Joseph. But then you flip the page to the very next book, the very next story, and you find that the Pharaoh had forgotten about Joseph. The Pharaohs had forgotten about Joseph, and they threw that family into slavery and bondage. This is the story of the Exodus, and this is the story of Egypt. And over the last few weeks, Pastor Shane has talked about how Egypt becomes this controlling sort of metaphor for the Old Testament. That Egypt is this place and this time in history when people are literally in bondage. And yet Egypt also becomes a place and a metaphor for our own bondage and our own story. And Exodus is the story of how God goes into Egypt, raises up this man named Moses, and then works miracle after miracle to ultimately deliver his people out of Egypt. And the Red Sea parts, and the people walk across on dry land, and they enter into the promised land. So this story of bondage and slavery into freedom through God's miraculous provision is a story of triumph and joy. And as the Old Testament, as this gift of God continues to unfold, the writers, the scribes, the priests, the prophets begin to play with the story. They begin to see how their current events always go back ultimately to the Exodus and to Egypt. And we're told in First and Second Kings that one of the things that they were not supposed to do was to do business with Egypt. But that, that would be a problem. If you got intertwined with Egypt, you would have an issue again. But the kings, they buy chariots and horses from Egypt. They do business with Egypt and the other nations. And before long, they find themselves worshiping other gods, doing things that they shouldn't be doing. 
And then by the end of 2 Kings, we see that the nation is split into two. There's Israel and Judah. And Israel is taken over by Assyria. This wonderful, like, terrible power in the ancient Near East comes in, destroys the place, carries off people into exile, and it's bad. And for about another hundred years, Judah, this smaller kingdom, survives. But they, too, are just more and more getting intertwined with idolatry and evil. And before you know it, this other world power comes along, Babylon. And they come into them, and they ransack the city. They burn it down, and they take the people into exile. And so whereas for, e for the Old Testament, Egypt becomes this metaphor for sin and captivity, after the exile and in the New Testament, Babylon becomes a metaphor for sin and captivity. So the people find themselves once again in bondage. And once again, it's their own doing. The people are in exile, not just exodus. So the prophets are writing during this time, and they're speaking to the leaders, and they're calling on God to do something miraculous. And then we come to Ezra and Nehemiah, these two wonderful books, and we find that God this time hasn't worked through plagues. He hasn't worked through parting the Red Sea. Instead, what he's done is he worked in the heart of a king, and he's caused this king to allow the people to return. And so the exile ends, and they return from captivity. But this time, there isn't shouts of joy. There isn't some great march with manna for 40 years. They go back, and they literally have to rebuild their city with a tool in one hand and a sword in the other. Because though they're back in the land, it seems that the exile isn't really over. And what we see throughout the centuries when we look in history is that Israel isn't actually under its own control anymore. That yes, they're back in the land, but the thumb of a foreign power is always down on them. And it goes from Assyria to Babylon to Persia and ultimately to Rome. And all along the way, the people are happy that they have whatever amount of freedom they have, but the prophets are writing and they're beginning to point towards a day when ultimately Israel will be restored to its former glory. And this is when we begin to see these messianic prophecies. These prophecies that point towards a day when a figure will come and it will be by God's design and it will bring freedom to the captive. It will be freedom to those who are living in darkness. And this is what the prophets are talking about. So this morning, this is the word of God for the people of God before Jesus. It's a beautiful story, right? It's a story that's marked by captivity, but littered with hope, that hope runs throughout, that the people can be delivered, that they serve a God who will be faithful to them no matter what. And this is the story of the original gift, the gift of God's word. So here we are this morning, we sit at the beginning of Advent. We sit at the beginning of Advent and sometime after that story. And what is Advent? Advent is the season of the year where we're invited to reflect upon the birth of Jesus. We're invited to reflect upon the birth of our Savior and to consider what it means for our lives and to celebrate. So this morning, I want to invite us to hear with the gospel writers the story of Advent. And I want us to see 
how what they're saying is that Jesus is ultimately being regifted to us. That the word of God is being given to us again so that we can experience freedom. That you may be living in your own personal exile. You may be living in your own personal Egypt, right? You may walk in this morning and your marriage may be in shambles. You may walk in this morning fresh off of Thanksgiving and there was conflict over dinner and the very things that you didn't want to go for happened and there's drama all around your life. You may be in your own sort of Egypt. You may be dealing with addiction, maybe dealing with alcoholism. I don't know what you walk in with this morning. I don't know what your family walks in with this morning. But I know that when you walk in here, you might be experiencing a certain amount of freedom. You might be experiencing a certain amount of God's freedom in your life. But I want to tell you that God is inviting you into full freedom. That just as the people of Israel returned from exile, but they had to live with a tool in one hand and a sword in the other, that you may be living your Christian life with a Bible in one hand and a drink in the other. You may be living your life with peace in one hand and conflict on the other. And God is inviting you into a life of full restoration. God is inviting you into a life of peace and joy. He's inviting you into a life where your marriage is restored, your family relationships are peaceful, your finances are better. God is inviting you to that. He's inviting you to that. This is what Advent does. So we look in Matthew, and this is the opening chapters of the New Testament. And they placed it there for specific reasons. Matthew is writing the gospel, and he wants to tell us the story of Jesus' birth. And it opens with some interesting points. First, in Matthew 1, we find a genealogy. We've gone through the genealogy before last year, and what you see is that it's filled with interesting details, right? That you find that there are women mentioned throughout when genealogies typically didn't mention women. And that each of these women are foreigners. They're not actually a part of the family of God, but they get married in. And then each of these women either has some kind of controversy around themselves or around the man that they married. And Matthew is inviting us to read the history of Jesus and see that his family is not unlike our family. That his family is messed up just like ours. And yet Jesus comes right into that moment to heal it to invite those who are far off to come close and to make families at peace. So that's how he starts off the story. And then he moves to Jesus' birth. And Jesus' birth is shrouded in controversy, right? Now, we, we believe the story and we live with the story and we've heard it for years and years and years of our lives. But it, we need to remember how crazy it is to imagine that a woman who's a virgin, could give birth. Surely no one in her town believed her, right? And Joseph, because no one believed her, was willing to divorce her quietly. This is the story of Jesus' birth, shrouded in public controversy, even though inwardly it was good. So Matthew is beginning to tell us more and more. And then he moves in to tell us that Jesus' birth was an international affair. This common peasant baby, born in a stable, somehow summons wise men from across the world. 
So these wise men, we call them three because of the number of gifts that they bring. They come across the world, they travel because they've read the stars and they see that a king is supposed to be born. So Matthew is telling us the story of the first advent and reminding us that the world was watching this. And the story continues and Matthew tells us in chapter two, and this is where we'll focus today. He tells us that Jesus's birth was a dangerous affair. That Jesus' birth wasn't into peace, but he was born into conflict and his life was threatened. That from the moment he was born, there was a constant threat of death over his life. So this is where we find ourselves this morning in Matthew chapter 2. As we celebrate Jesus' first coming, let's read this story starting in verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, and said, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in, Judah, in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. So this is the Advent story. And each week, for the next four weeks, we'll light a candle. And these candles remind us that this story was about the light of the world. And the light of the world came into dark situations to bring hope and peace and joy. So Matthew is telling this interesting, intriguing story and on its own right, it's an amazing story, right? And we've read it for years. If you've grown up in the church or grown up around Christmas traditions, like you know the story like the back of your hand, and so it's hard to slow down and feel the weight of it. But this is a dramatic story, right? This is, this is some real drama. Like you could make a movie out of this. They have. You could make a novel out of this. You could, you could really just do this just with what it is, right? Like this is crazy. Grown men from around the world, read the stars, find out a baby's gonna be born, and travel to find this baby. And what we know from the story is that it could have been, they could have been traveling for up to two years. Because when Herod decides that he needs to put a squash to this, he goes up to two years for the children. Because he's not exactly sure when the baby was born. So grown men travel for up to two years to find a baby. And when they find a baby, they give a gift to that baby. I mean, that's, that's a pretty crazy story right there. Like, we you know, how many of you love to go to birthday parties for little kids? 
Exactly. Okay, and so these guys travel for two years to get to a birthday party for a kid they don't even know. Right? That's a crazy story. But then along the way, they get intercepted. They get intercepted by a king, Herod. Now this, it's already crazy that grown men would look for a baby, but it's even crazier that a grown, on-the-throne king would be scared of a baby. Now, if it was like his nephew's son, and like had like three lives removed from the throne, then maybe you could understand why he would go after the baby. But this is a common baby born in a manger in a nondescript town. And this king, shaking in his boots or his sandals, is so scared that he commits genocide. Like that's the story that we're reading, right? Is that he goes to this general area where he knows the baby was supposedly born. That's all the evidence that he has. It's all the evidence that he has, and he commits genocide. This is a riveting story. And then what ends up happening is that in order to escape, Joseph and Mary, if this was a, if this was a movie, you would see them going in and out of the shadows, traveling to Egypt, just trying to keep their baby alive. And their visions and dreams and after who knows how long exactly, they're invited back by another dream to go back to Israel, to go back home. But on their way back, they realize that, yes, the king is dead, but his relative isn't that much better. So we're going to go to even a different place. So they go into a different town. They don't even get to go back home. Now, this is the story of the birth of Jesus. This is the story of Advent. It's dramatic. It's filled with conflict, filled with issues. Like, you would be justified to just write that story. Matthew would be totally right to just tell you that story, but that is not what Matthew does. That is not what Matthew does. He doesn't add a bunch of extra details that would spice the story up. He gives you the facts, and then when he adds details, what does he say? He says, and this happened so that it was fulfilled. This happened so that it was fulfilled. You see, Matthew is a man steeped in the stories of his faith. Matthew is a man who lived with this gift. Matthew is a man who had been given the word of God and these stories. And when he met Jesus, he realized that this gift had been wrapped in swaddling clothes and given again. This gift, the word of God, become flesh, had been given again. Now notice what Matthew does. This is crazy. He's writing what would later become our Bible. But in this moment, he's just writing a story about Jesus and a commentary on the word of God. And he looks to the word of God here and he says, this is all about Jesus. Everything that happens here is about Jesus. So what you and I read as the Old Testament, Jesus has given back to us with deeper and deeper meaning. So let's look for just a second exactly what it is that Matthew does. See, as he tells us this story, he wants us to see a couple of specific passages. Okay? First, he points to us to Hosea 11 verse 1. It's in your bulletin if you want to read it. 
Hosea 11.1, 1, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So Matthew is writing the story of Jesus, and he's writing about the time that Jesus had to go into Egypt. And armed with all of this knowledge of God's word and the metaphor of Egypt as a source of captivity, as a place of bondage, he sees Jesus going there. And then he remembers the Exodus. And see, what you need to know about Hosea 11 is that it says this, out of, Israel, out of Egypt I called my son. But then the preceding verses after that begin to tell you of how Israel remained unfaithful. That when God called Israel out of Egypt, then all of its history happened. And it was unfaithful. And eventually it ended up back in bondage, this time in Babylon. Right? And so that what happened when God called his children out of Egypt wasn't faithfulness, but it was a cycle of sin and sin and sin and sin. And so here is Matthew telling us this story of Jesus again. And he says, hmm, God is once again calling his children, his child out of Egypt. But the next verses are going to be different. Rather than being marked by unfaithfulness, the life of Jesus is going to be marked by faithfulness. That this is a departing moment. That when God calls Jesus out of Egypt, everything's going to change. Right? And that suddenly what's going to happen is that fractured relationship between humans and God is going to be restored through Jesus. So Matthew invites us to see this. He invites us to remember Hosea 11. See, Hosea is the story of God telling a prophet to marry a prostitute. Telling her to marry a prostitute, even though this prostitute hasn't quit that lifestyle. And the book is a story about how that goes, and it goes exactly as you would expect. She continues to do the things that she continues to do, and God tells Hosea to stay faithful anyways, to pursue her anyways. And what we find in the end is that this is a picture of God's relationship with Israel and with humanity. That we continually are unfaithful, continually unfaithful, and God continually pursues. God continually pursues us no matter what we're doing or where we're running. So when Matthew reads the story of Jesus, he sees that. And then he continues on, and he begins to talk about this terrible moment when the children of Israel in the form of little boys in Bethlehem are killed. And he invites us to read Jeremiah 31, and specifically verse 15. It says, This is what the Lord says, A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. If you go back to Genesis, you find that Rachel is longing for children. She's one of the wives of Jacob. She's longing for children she grieves and she mourns. She does everything in her power. And when she finally gets children, it's great until the last child kills her in birth. Rachel is this picture of longing for children and then tragedy when things go wrong. And so the prophet Jeremiah picks up on this idea and he sees his people in exile. He sees the children of Israel dying and gone, and he reimagines Rachel weeping and crying. But unlike Hosea, Jeremiah 31 has a different message. If you read the verses after this, you find that God is telling Rachel that it's time to quit crying, that the time of your deliverance is near, that God is about to do a new thing, 
is about to make a new covenant with you and your children will be restored. So Matthew invites us to read the Advent story with the prophets. He invites us to read it knowing the history of unfaithfulness, hoping for a change, hoping for someone to come in and do something different. And the Gospel of Matthew continues and it begins to unfold for us how Jesus is that person. That Jesus comes and he does restore all things, that he is faithful and that ultimately he makes all things right. The question for us this morning is why does Matthew do this? Why doesn't Matthew just let the story go as it is? Why does he insist on making sure that we see all of the beauty of these Old Testament passages? You see, Jesus, for Matthew, is the re-gifted Word of God. He's the re-gifted Word of God that brings out the deepest meaning of the written Word of God. And this is what Jesus does for us. You see, just in a very real and practical sense, as Christians, we need to learn to read the Old Testament for this story. We need to learn to read the Old Testament not as a precursor to the New Testament, not as a nice little story, but as the gospel. Because here is Matthew when he wants to tell us the Advent story and he opens the scriptures and he looks at Jesus and he says, this is what's happening. You see, Jesus is a lot like Moses. Moses in the Old Testament ends up in Pharaoh's house. And for a time, Egypt is a place of safety for him. So Jesus ends up in Egypt, and for a time, it's a place of safety for him. But what happens with Moses' life in early years? Children are massacred. And so Matthew sits down to read the story of Jesus and to tell it, and he remembers the murder of these children, and he sees a connection, that Jesus is a new Moses, that he's coming up in the same type of setting. And then what happens? Moses grows up, and he's called to deliver Israel from Egypt. And Matthew, we don't have time today, tells us the story of Jesus growing up, living into what he's called to do, and delivering the world out of captivity. That Jesus, as the word of God, is re-gifting to us the written word of God. What does this mean for us? This is like a cool Bible lesson, right? What does this mean for us? It's like, whoa, that's a lot going on, but how does that impact my life? See, Matthew wants, to look at, wants us to look at the story of Jesus and see how it infuses everything in our life with deeper meaning. That ultimately what Jesus is about is bringing freedom, bringing freedom to those who are in captive. And so what Egypt was for Israel, literally what it became for them metaphorically and what Egypt and bondage is in our lives, Jesus is here to heal that. Right? It doesn't matter what you walk in with this morning. It doesn't matter what bondage you walk in with in your heart. It doesn't matter what addiction you walk in with. It doesn't matter what conflict you walk in with. God is here to bring freedom to the captive, yes. to bring freedom to those who are walking in darkness, to give you a second chance, to re-gift you with life. If the worship team would come forward... The Old Testament is a beautiful story, and Advent is a beautiful story. The birth of Jesus invites us to imagine and to celebrate 
all that God is doing in our lives. And the question for us is what impact does it have on our lives? If Jesus has come to deliver us from captivity, are we walking around with God's word in one hand and a beer in the other, whatever the addiction might be for you, whatever the sin might be for you? Are we walking around with these things both in our hands when God desires to give you real freedom, real truth? I was recently talking with my father-in-law about my grandparents. And I started off telling you this story about my dad's dad and this legacy. But I mentioned that I had two generations on either side of people who loved the Lord. Uh, My other grandfather, my mom's dad, was a wonderful, wonderful man. Uh, And he passed away a few years ago from uh, a ripe old age and, and Alzheimer's. Uh, and recently, my father-in-law was talking to me about him. We were just reminiscing. And, and I, he asked me, what was your grandfather's hobby? Like, what did he do? And I, like, had to think back through all the years of knowing him, and I couldn't come up with a hobby. I, I don't remember my, my grandfather doing anything other than being a wonderful husband, caring for his wife and his children, and spending time with us as grandchildren. Now, I'm sure he had hobbies. I'm sure he had things that he loved. But the only thing I could come up with is that he studied God's word. So that's like the one thing that I remember him doing, right? Is that he just studied the word of God over and over again. And he was this kind-hearted, meek, gentle man. And one year before he passed away and before Alzheimer's got a hold of his mind, I was asking him about his early life and when he got saved. And he told me that he was... uh, he was becoming a young man. He was entering into the Navy when he got saved. He said, I, I got saved, but I was still dealing with all these issues in my life. And I was on the ship one day, and I was struggling with how to go deeper in my relationship with God. And I walked up there to the edge of the boat, and I pulled out the cigarettes, which was like his vice. He said, I, and I realized that this was holding me back from God in, in a tangible way. So he threw him into the ocean. He said, I never looked back. He said, the one thing that I did during my Navy years that I shouldn't have done, but I would do it again if I had the chance, is I would take extra long bathroom breaks. And I would get out my little Bible, and I would read my Bible. So here's this man telling me about his wild years in the Navy, and it's him sitting in a bathroom stall reading God's Word, right? That's the kind of man that he was. And so he spent decades doing that, studying God's Word, trying to grow to be more like Jesus. And he was much longer in that journey, further along in that journey, when I really got to know him. And there's this story. My mother was getting ready for a Christmas play at a school she was working at, like here. And he drove the two, two and a half hours to get to the school to have lunch with my mother and to see what she was doing. And, you know, he was proud of his daughter. And he left, and it seemed just like a normal day, until about an hour later, he showed back up. You see, he had gone about 30 minutes away And he just started to cry because he knew that God had told him to read the Christmas story to these children. So he began to cry, and he turned his car around, and he drove back to the school, and he said, I'm so sorry, I should have done this. Uh, Can I read the Christmas story to these children? So here's this wonderful, gentle old man reading the Advent story to these children. That's That's the grandfather that I remember. A man who spent his whole life allowing the coming of Jesus to free him from any vice, to transform his heart and his mind, and to give him freedom. 
so that when I look back and I think about my grandfather, I don't think of him having the word of God in one hand and anything else in the other. I know he wasn't perfect, but I remember a man, as far as I'm concerned, as close to fully transformed by God's love as anyone I've ever known, whose heart was fully devoted and transformed by the coming of our Savior. That's what we're looking for in Advent. That's what we're looking for when we're re-gifted Jesus. We're looking for a life that opens the word and is transformed. Because Advent can't leave you the same. The birth of Jesus is meant to free you. And if you know Jesus and you're not free and you're not living into the freedom that God has for you, there's more for you. There's more for you and your life. There's more for your marriage. There's more for your finances. There's more for your extended family. There's more for your immediate family. God is here to bring you out of your own Egypt, to bring you out of the exile, to restore you to what he wants you to be. So this morning, that's our question. If you'll stand with me. The worship team is going to sing how great thou art. I'm going to sing about the goodness of our God. So as we start this Advent season, I invite you. I invite you to reflect on how great our God is who is here to set you free. And if you're walking around with God's word in one hand and anything else in the other, I invite you to lay it down and find freedom. So I invite you to do that by coming forward as they play and finding a place. A place. Join Pastor Shane of Covenant Life Church next time for another powerful and inspirational message. To find out more about Covenant Life Church, log on to www.covenant-life.com or call 919-462-1932. Remember, living life without direction is meaningless. Living a purpose life with direction from Jesus Christ is your life fulfilled.